We want to say Merry Christmas to everybody. A very, very Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. No wonder he lost the war on Christmas. So I say Merry Christmas. That'll teach him. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast. Merry Christmas, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, Radio Sputnik, and many other fine affiliates, both terrestrial and internet-based. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com, here with you between the uh, between the holidays, between the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Yes, other radio shows, why they just bring you rebroadcasts, not us. No, we're here with fresh spanking new content. Because we are gluttons. So <laughs> glad you could uh, glutton along with us. Uh, coming up, our friend, the great Heather Digby-Parton will join us for... A bit of a year-end wrap on both the long, long fake war on Christmas and the long, long, if very real, war on truth, unfortunately. A fight that we wage every day here on this uh, program, the the war for truth in this case, uh, here and at bradblog.com and on the Green News Report, of course, with Desi Doyen. Hello, Desiree. Hello. And it's a, uh, it's a war that I'm not sure we're winning at this point, this war for truth. Maybe Digby will have some, uh, some encouraging news for us on that front. It's been a while since we've chatted with her. And I have much to ask her about. So let me speed through several other items here very quickly. I do want to thank Angie Coiro, uh, who sat in for us um, on our previous episode with her exclusive interview with Al Gore. And it was fantastic, by the way. If you haven't heard it, uh, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. Uh, I got, you know, I got to say, I- I've. Uh, I don't think I have heard a better interview with Al Gore. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. uh, Details. It was lengthy. Uh, You know, it was personal at times for him. Um, It it was funny. It was informative. Lengthy, but not boring because he had an opportunity to actually explain stuff. And he's very, actually very entertaining. 
Yeah, very funny at yeah. times. And so uh, thank you, Angie, uh, for sitting in for us and sharing that uh, that interview with Al Gore. People should download it from bradblog.com if you haven't heard it. I'm quite proud uh, that we were able to bring it to you. I'm proud that we were able to, you know, you, usually you don't hear Gore unless it's one of his, uh, if it's a rally somewhere or if he's being interviewed, you know, it's seven or eight minutes on Tops somebody's show. Best. Right. So to get an in-depth conversation with him, I thought was just fantastic. And I'm very proud that we were able to bring you that exclusive uh, here at uh, the broadcast. Yeah. And, and very hopeful. I want to add very hopeful as well. Yeah. So uh, check that out. All right. Uh, oh, and while you're there, we will thank you if you stop by bradblog.com slash donate. If you have any pennies left in your pocket after this uh, after this Christmas, we could use all the help you can uh, muster. All right. I want to hit, as I said very quickly, some news from our federal courts over the holiday weekend where they were forced, thanks to this crazy administration, to... Uh, to, to make some rulings that they had to make at the last minute, even over the holiday, even though we all should have been standing down over the holiday. Um, here's just a few of them. A federal judge ruled on Saturday. Again, this is Saturday, Christmas weekend. Uh, judge ruled Saturday that the Department of Housing and Urban Development, that's HUD, must implement a rule to help low-income families find housing on January 1, 2018, HUD officials had announced back in August that they were going to delay this rule for two years that was uh, initially set to go into effect on January 1, put in place by the previous administration. But Trump administration came in, saw something that might help low income families find housing, I guess, and said, well, no, we've got to put a let's put the brakes <laughs> on that. <laughs> got to put a stop to that. You know, the family values crowd. Several civil civil rights groups, including the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, sued the Trump administration over this move back in October. Chief Judge Beryl A. Howell, a, an, an Obama appointee, found that HUD did not provide fair reasoning to delay this rule and that the delay was made arbitrarily. Howell wrote that this case is about uh, is about the rule of law, whether an agency effectively may suspend a duly promulgated regulation without observing the procedures or identifying relevant factual criteria that the law requires to affect such a change. I mean, they really just did this because they wanted to do this. There was no evidence no to support it, no reason for it other than they felt like it. The small area fair market rent rule would have required public housing officials to calculate subsidies for rent based on formulas for zip codes instead of ones for entire metropolitan areas, which the groups who sued had argued uh, means that low income people who use the subsidies are forced to live in areas with few opportunities. Uh, because of the way the rule had been until it was changed under Obama, Howell found that HUD did not have the proper authority to delay the rule and that the stay was made arbitrarily. Uh, Howell wrote, the rule unquestionably is a substantive regulation delay of which ordinary uh, of which ordinarily would require notice and comment. HUD, however, did not delay the rules implementation through notice and comment. They just decided they didn't want it anymore. Well, the federal judge says, no, that's not the way government works, at least for now, at least while we still have a federal judiciary that uh, relies on the rule of law. 
Meanwhile, on Saturday as well, a federal judge in Seattle partially lifted a Trump administration ban on certain refugees after two groups argued that the um, that the policy prevented people from some Muslim countries from reuniting with family living legally in the U.S. U.S. District Judge James Robart heard arguments on Thursday in lawsuits from the ACLU and the Jewish Family Service, which say the ban causes irreparable harm, puts some people at risk. Government lawyers argued that the ban is needed to, uh, wait for it, protect national security. The judge found just the opposite. Robart argued the federal government um, ordered the federal government to process certain refugee applications. He said his order applies to people, quote, with a bona fide relationship to a person or entity within the U.S. Donald Trump had restarted the refugee program back in October, but with, quote, enhanced vetting capabilities, whatever that means, saying that certain refugees must be banned unless additional security measures are implemented. But in his decision, the judge wrote that the policy will actually harm the U.S. national security and foreign policy interests and said his order restores refugee procedures in programs to what they were before the new Trump policy, noting that this already included very thorough vetting of individuals. The ACLU argued that the administration provided no evidence for why additional security was needed and didn't specify a time frame for implementing any of these changes. The group say that the process for imposing the policy violated a federal law. The ACLU represents a Somali man living in Washington state who's been trying to, uh, to bring his family here to the U.S. They have already gone through extensive vetting. They've passed security and medical clearances. They just need travel papers. But those were denied after the ban. So they went through all of these steps. They did everything they were supposed to. They went through these extensive procedures, these vetting procedures, passed all the clearances, and then they were still denied. Um, The staff attorney for the ACLU of uh, Washington, Lisa Nolan, said in a statement that they were happy for their client, who, quote, has not yet had the opportunity to celebrate a single birthday with his younger son in person, and that he will soon have the opportunity to hold his children, hug his wife in the very near future and be together again as a family for the first time in four years. Wow. That's how long they have been going through this already extreme vetting procedure that the Trump administration was trying to block. Two other refugees included in the Jewish Family Service lawsuit are former Iraqi interpreters for the U.S. Army whose lives are at risk because of their service. They were being blocked from coming here. Another is a trans... All before Christmas, by the way. Merry Christmas. Another is a transgender woman in Egypt, quote, living in such extremely dangerous circumstances that the U.S. government itself had expedited her case until the ban came down. That, according to a lawyer with the Jewish Family Service... Uh, Yet another woman is a single woman in Iraq. Her husband divorced her after she was kidnapped and raped by militants because she worked with an American company. Her family is in the U.S., but she, too, is stranded by the ban. 
So these were a couple. There was more. Uh, we'll get to them uh, later in this uh, later this week. Yep, we're here all week. Uh, but uh, it just those two jump out at me as just incredible before Christmas that a federal court has to make those kind of uh, of findings, essentially emergency findings before uh, before the new year. So uh, you know, Merry Christmas. Those folks, it seems, can now come to the U.S. despite those like Donald Trump pretending that there is a war on Christmas. Uh, not very Christ-like of well, them, no, if you it's, ask me. It's, it's not very Christian, you know, and Christians are called to welcome the stranger. So, hey, guys, you know, any day now you can you can follow through with those so-called Christian family values that you've been campaigning on for so long. Right. So, I mean, if there is a war on Christmas, like Fox News and Donald Trump have been pretending for years, they're the ones waging it. Apparently, they're the ones who are not being very Christ-like and, you know, turning people away from this country in, in grave need. And and also to point turning, out, yeah. as these judges had said, there was no reason for this. Yep. It was arbitrary. They'd yep. already gone through all the processes that anybody would tell you are quite extensive in this particular program, most extensive uh, among all of the uh, U.S. vetting programs. I, I guess the question is, do they know? That this is not how government works or do they, uh, you know, and they just don't care or do they really not understand it? Do they think they can just come in and uh, basically do as, as, as Trump has tried to do, just declare things by fiat? I sadly believe that it is that, that it is the latter, that they know better, and that even if Trump himself may be completely ignorant of the functions of government, the people that work among him and that he has hired to work in his administration, they know exactly what they're doing. They're doing it on purpose. It is a bait and switch. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know anymore what people know and what people don't, what these, uh, what Donald Trump knows, what he doesn't, what the people who he has, these, these you know, these these lobbyists and uh, swamp d dwellers, frankly, that he's that he's hired on to run his government, what they know and what they don't, what they simply don't care about. And I also don't know what the uh, what Trump supporters actually know and don't. Well, and what yeah, they that's uh, a whole actually <laughs> don't care about. Well, that's a whole other world that we'll talk with uh, shortly here with uh, Heather Digby Parton. Let's take a quick break. And we will come back and talk with her. You know, I'm just glad that for now, at least, our court system, what remains of it at this point, has once again blocked the Trump administration from doing all of these terribly unchristlike things at Christmas. Unchristian. So there's that, yeah. uh, at least for the moment. Um, how long that moment remains as he's filling up the federal court with all kinds of uh, people who are equally unqualified as the people that he's, you know, hired to run federal agencies. How long that all lasts, I don't know. Anyway, we'll talk about all of that and much more with Heather Digby Parton right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Living in a shotgun shack 
and you may find yourself in another part of the world, and you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile, and you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife, and you know, you may say to yourself, well, how did I get here? Good question. It's Trump's world. We just live in it now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. President Trump visited his West Palm Beach, Florida golf course on Tuesday, the day after Christmas. The uh, president, who has said he is on a working vacation, uh, tweeted on Christmas night that he would, quote, get back to work on Tuesday. He said, I hope everyone is having a great Christmas. Then tomorrow it's back to work in order to make America great again, which is happening faster than anyone anticipated, he wrote. Well, he he began that back to work day on Tuesday by watching Fox and Friends and attacking the special counsel's investigation into his campaign's alleged collusion with Russia. And then he hit the links. Straight out to the golf course. Nice work if you can get it. Many presidents, of course, have played golf while they've been in office, especially while they've been on vacation. But Trump's aides rarely say whether the president is playing golf when he visits his courses, which he does all the time during his campaign. Trump promised he would largely give up the game if he were elected president. He said, I'm going to be working for you. I'm not going to have time to go play golf. Believe me. That's what he said during an August 2016 rally in Virginia. And, of course, the dupes, chumps, patsies and suckers who voted for Trump did believe him, it seems. Nonetheless, Tuesday marked the 85th visit to one of his own golf properties as president, according to a tally kept by NBC News. A new report of Donald Trump's travel during his first 11 months in office shows some pretty staggering numbers. A Wall Street Journal review published on Monday, Christmas Day, found that in his first year in, in office, Trump has spent nearly one-third of his days at one of his own properties. He's logged 40 days at his Bedmin Bedminster, New Jersey golf course, another 40 days at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Palm Beach, Florida. And, of course, the year isn't even over yet. Today marks the 110th day Trump, as president, has spent time at one of his properties. That's nearly one-third of his days in office at properties that bear his name, according to a uh, CNN executive editor on Twitter. Trump's frequent vacations have drawn particular scrutiny given his promise on the campaign trail that he would, quote, rarely leave the White House, in addition to his criticism of former President Barack Obama for his excursions and golf outings in years past. A New York Times comparison to Obama from back in April showed that even a few months into his presidency, Trump was already far outpacing his predecessors in his golfing habits. At 110 days spent at his properties so far in less than a year, he is definitely on pace to outdo Barack Obama. According to the USA Today, the cost of operating Trump's golf, co golf carts alone during his Thanksgiving trip to Mar-a-Lago in Palm Springs was $7,500 just for the golf carts. The total bill for that trip came in around $16 million taxpayer dollars. 
According to the Wall Street Journal, the total airfare to the Florida result, uh, resort alone has racked up a tab of $6 million. Obama's trips, of course, were expensive as well, but the sheer number of trips our current president has taken make these costs far more substantial. Figures have varied on exactly how much each of these Trump trips cost. Politico estimates some $3 million for one trip. But the Washington Post put that puts that close uh, that figure closer to two million dollars. Still, uh, that is not pennies either. So his 85th visit to one of his golf courses, and he hasn't even been in office a full year yet during a year in which he repeatedly said he wouldn't have time to play any golf because he'd be so busy working. After years of criticizing Obama whenever he took one of the few vacations or rounds of golf during his presidency. Now, lying about golf and vacations when it is uh, so easy to see that he is lying. Well, that is certainly the least of our problems right now. But I think it's it's sort of emblematic of the post-truth world that we all now seem to live in. Just another day. In the uh, in the bizarre post-truth Trump era where the world goes on, even as we can all see the lies right in front of our face. Back in New York, uh, we used to we used to use the old joke. It's Sinatra's world. We just live in it. Well, that's kind of what it feels like these days, whether any of us like it or not. If you replace Trump for Sinatra in that old joke, even at Christmas time. But it's no longer a joke. This is real. And it's continually terrifying, even at Christmas, uh, at least to me. We will find out if it is similarly terrifying to our good friend Heather Digby Parton, known far and wide on the Internet as simply Digby. She is the creator of the long-running Hullabaloo blog, a regular contributor to Salon.com, and a winner of the Sidney Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. She is, of course a longtime friend of the Brad blog and the Bradcast. Heather Digby Parton, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Brad. It has been a, uh, as, uh, another long time since we had you on. At least it feels like it. I, you know, and I keep making notes all the time. Oh, I got to ask Heather about this. I got to ask about that. So pardon me if we go sort of all over the place here today at the end of the year as we wrap up year one under Donald Trump with an eye towards, uh, oh, God save us, Heather, years two, three, four, oh or God. more. Uh, it, but, I, you know, I like to have you on sort of for some of these milestones in all of this. For, uh, first, uh, well, I need to ask, did you and yours survive the war on Christmas this year in good order, Heather? Well, it wasn't easy. Yeah. You know, it was not easy yeah. because, you know, we were down there fighting yeah, against I Christmas I know. because that's how I am. I know I, you are. I, Nobody <laughs> hates Christmas more than me. I know. And, and, and everyone I know. But we fought and we fought and we lost. Yeah. And I'm here to, to, I'm waving the white flag and saying <laughs> it's over. I surrender. Big truth. Donald Trump won. He won the war on Christmas. We can all just acknowledge that and carry on from now on. Uh, you know, yeah, I, and of course it's hilarious, but a serious question. You know, I was reading Twitter and um, I was seeing many grateful Trumpers. Again, this is one of these things that seems so stupid, but I was seeing many grateful Trumpers who actually seem to believe that this pretend war on Christmas was finally over, thanks to Donald Trump. 
Uh, you know, one of those uh, Trumpers uh, tweeting to that effect was actually Trump himself. He, he tweeted, people are proud to say Merry Christmas again, and I'm proud to have led the charge against the assault of our cherished and beautiful phrase, Merry Christmas. And people actually believe this. I mean, do they really believe this, Brad? I mean, this is the thing. I, I mean, I've been, over the last few days, we've seen a lot of this, you know, and, and the commentary, you know, there's been a lot of mm-hmm. uh, video they've put together of uh, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama saying Merry Christmas a hundred times. Yeah, here, let me play one of them, just to prove it, just yeah. so people, go, go ahead, pull, play a little, go, go ahead. Have a very Merry Christmas. We want to say Merry Christmas to everybody. A very, very Merry Christmas and a holiday-filled with joy. I want to wish every American a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. Okay. Merry Christmas, everybody. So you get the idea. This goes. This goes on and on and on. I know. It's like a hundred times that they say it, and I'm sure that if you were to go back and look at any. Any presidency, whether it's it's was George Bush or the Clintons mm-hmm. or, or you know Bill Clinton or or Reagan or mm-hmm. other, they all said Merry Christmas. I mean, this is just that I can't even believe I have to say this. I can't even believe <laughs> I had to play it, but I felt I like know. I need to play it on the air just to prove that we're not making it up. Yeah. Well, this is the thing that that kind of makes me it makes me a little crazy because yeah. I'm thinking, okay, how far have we come yep. that we are actually at a point where we have to prove <laughs> yes. that there was no war on Christmas. And because there are people, and, you know, I keep wondering, I mean, are these Russian bots? Are they people who, Rip Van Winkles, who've been asleep for the last 50 years? I mean, I don't know who these people are on Twitter going, thank you, President Trump, for saving Christmas. The war on Christmas is over. You know, long live Christmas, whatever. These people, do they believe it, or is this a joke, and they're just kind of yanking our chains? They do. They do believe it. They're oh not. God. They're not bots. I have been, uh, you know, communicating with some of them, just, uh, you know, out of. Uh, just the sh- shock and awe over the Christmas season, you know, to see if these are these people really believe it. And yeah, there are actually are a non-trivial number of people who actually buy into this nonsense. And that's why I bring it up because it's uh, you know, my, I don't want to get too heavy here. It's Christmas, it's the holidays, you yeah. know. I, it's but I, I think the fact that there is a non-trivial number of people who actually buy into this nonsense is emblematic of a very serious problem we have in this country that affects everything else having to do with, you know, non-war on Christmas items as well. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, this is the, this is a trivial example of something that's actually happening on a much grander scale, which is that we have an alternative. We have, we have people who are living in an, in an alternative reality. When I'm writing about it, I, you know, I just use the old you know, the old uh, comic book, Bizarro World, mm-hmm. um, in which everything is, you know, it's kind of opposite land. And if you go over to Fox News or you look at, you know, any of the right-wing media like Breitbart or you look at mm-hmm. right-wing social media or talk radio, of course, mm-hmm. um, it, it's no longer just, you know, we're arguing over stuff and they've got a different point of view and they want to do different things and they hate different people and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're in a completely different, different, uh, you know, dimension than mm-hmm. we are. They're, the world that they, the arguments they're having are not arguments that are taking place 
in our world. <laughs> They're not arguing with real mm. people. They're not having the same kind of, you know, we're not existing on the same level of reality. This is very strange. I mean, a lot of it's driven by, I mean, it's been around. I mean, we've been watching, you know, talk radio do this stuff for a long time, but mm -hmm. it, something's changed. It is actually different. I think a lot of it's driven by social media, where, you know, it's just such a, a feedback loop that there's, it's no longer necessary to actually engage with the real world. And when you have a president who is completely disengaged from the truth, I mean, this guy, he, you know, his, his, they've been counting the lies, different media mm -hmm. companies. They number in the thousands. I mean, he lies several times a day. These are provable lies. This isn't mm -hmm. something where somebody's just going, oh, well, he's shading the truth here, or spinning, or, you know, these aren't spin. This is actual out-and-out -out lies. Well, like the thing, you know, with Christmas, which is a trivial example, mm -hmm. but true nonetheless, that there is no war on Christmas. He did not save the world from the war on Christmas. There was no war to be won. We've been saying Merry Christmas every Christmas, you know, since Christmas sure. began. And, you know, so he, his doing this, I mean, that's just an example, but it goes on and on in every way. I mean, from the Russia investigation to the economy to what the tax cut's going to do. And we have no idea what, you know, what he truly believes is true, what is he's just saying because mm -hmm. he's lying, what his people believe, what they don't believe. I mean, this is a very disorienting I mean, I think disorienting is the word I, I would use for 2017, because I think we're all kind of, you know, feeling just a little bit dizzy and just a little bit unsure it, of it. It, it, it is. No, you're right. Uh, disorienting is the perfect word, because there used to be, you know, for... Well, for I would say the last eight years or so of the Barack Obama administration, you could by and large dismiss the nonsense coming from Fox News. You could see that it was transparent nonsense, that it was made up facts. Uh, and you could sort of, you know, it, it, I, I much more enjoyed uh, going after Democrats and pushing them to do the right thing and, you know, talk about policy and talk about where they were screwing up how they had to do better uh, and just sort of, you know, dismiss the nonsense coming from the from the right wing rage machine because it really was nonsense. Now you can't dismiss it anymore because the guy's president. He if here's one example. He, he tweets. Uh, I don't know if this was today, yesterday, the tax cut reform bill, including massive Alaska drilling because he's very proud of that. Uh, and the repeal of the highly unpopular individual mandate he's talking about uh, from Obamacare brought it all together as to what an incredible year we had. Don't let the fake news convince you otherwise. And our insider polls are strong. Heather, are there any such insider <laughs> polls or does uh, the president of the United States just well, make this stuff up out of whole cloth now in broad know. daylight? The voices in his head may be conducting polls with each other, yeah. <laughs> but beyond that, I don't know. I mean, this actually, he had another, another tweet that came just before that. I don't know if it was the same day or maybe the day before, which was talking about our base is much stronger than anybody will let you know. We are doing way better than what you're hearing. Mm -hmm. Now... You know, we read a lot of stuff in the media, you know, that, I mean, one of the, the only good things that we have coming out of this past year is the fact that, for whatever reason, people within the Trump uh, orbit, within his, his administration, leak like sieves. 
Right. So you hear a lot of stuff, and it's kind of, you know, and sometimes I wish I didn't know, but, you know, better to know than not know. And, you know, they have leaked the fact that in order to get along with him, I mean, he's like, you know, sort of like an a 11-year-old Chinese prince from the 1800s, right? You know, I mean, he's like completely cosseted from reality, and everybody's just sort of bowing down and scraping and telling him what he wants to hear. So he gets information from people that, you know, these just sort of reinforce his beliefs. I mean, and, and this is, you know, it's one thing if they're doing this, telling him, all oh, our insider polls, look, you know, they look really good, and somebody's making up numbers and handing them to him. It's another when, as we know, and this is also true, uh, they're shading the intelligence reports to make him feel better because he doesn't like hearing about certain things that, mm. make, that make him upset. Um, so, you know, this is part of the whole Trump phenomenon. At this point, I'm not sure anymore what's in his head, what certain people are feeding him around him to keep him happy. And, you know, we've seen, I mean, this is one of the most concerning things I have seen in the last month, which there's something has shifted, and that is when we started to see people like Lindsey Graham, Orrin Hatch, uh, a whole slew of House Republicans start to join the dear leader cult where it became obvious that they've made a decision to be as obsequious and you know overly flattering toward him as they can be and whether or not it's because they think they can manipulate him that way or they really believe it or you know who knows i can't read their minds but this is new behavior uh, this kind of joining up on the level that you know you normally only saw at trump rallies mm-hmm. we're starting to see it at rallies like the one we had after the tax bill passed, uh, of people standing there and just basically, you know, kissing his ring and kissing his feet. I mean, it was it was shocking to me. And that was you mentioned Lindsey Graham. Uh, for for him to be doing that, he he was you know kind of un- yeah he was unrelenting during the mm-hmm. campaign. Uh, you know, calling this guy a, a psycho and a liar and you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, all sorts of things. And yeah, now he's on board. And it makes me wonder, uh, as Al Franken did in his um, his final speech, I guess, that he gave. Uh, presumably this is his final speech. I still wish he would uh, reconsider, but I want to get your thoughts on that as well in a second, Heather. But in, in that final speech on, on the floor late last week, uh, Al Franken said that we are essentially, he feared anyway, losing the war for truth. You know, before I came to the Senate, I was known as something of an obsessive on the subject of honesty in public discourse. But as I leave the Senate, I feel, I I have to admit that it feels like we're losing the war for truth. And maybe it's already lost. So we've lost the war on Christmas. We're losing the war for truth. Uh, Heather is uh, is is he right here? Are are we losing it? Are we losing the war? Or is this just a a battle and the, the the war continues and we'll eventually win this thing? Yeah, I I don't know if we're going to win it. I, I don't know if we've lost it either. But it's definitely. I mean, it is raging. This war for for truth. This you know. I mean, we've called it different things over the years. And you know what? I mean, Brad, going, you know, you and I have been following this for a long time. Mm-hmm. So we know that this didn't just spring full-blown from Donald Trump. No. He's the, the most uh, obvious uh, sort of apotheosis of, their, of, of what they've been building for a long time. 
But recall, Al Gore wrote a book back in the early 2000s called The Assault on Reason, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, this didn't come out of nowhere. This Mm -hmm. has been happening. In fact, you go back to the early 90s and Newt Gingrich and his book of of propaganda, you know, these are the words to use, sick, depraved, you know, (laughs) dissolute for your enemies, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm So, you know, that wasn't a Russian thing either, you know, that was Newt Gingrich (laughs) doing that stuff. Yeah. you know, this this has been coming from for a long time. This sort of the movement uh, toward the manipulation of reality and the assault on reason and the war on truth. You know, all of these things are happening. And and you know, it's it, it, it like I said, it's disorienting because what we're finding is now we have someone in power and people around him who are basically either capitulating or have decided opportunistically to join him for their own reasons. You know, I mean, this, the, the, and, and maybe there are true believers in the Trump orbit. I, I don't even know. I, when you see him have his cabinet uh, meetings and they all go around the circle and talk about how, you know, we just, we're so blessed to have you as our president. I mean, I don't know what kind of person would do that. Um, you know, I mean, that can't be part of the job description. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this is America. It's, it's, it's not... Yeah, it's, 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 it's nuts. It's creepy. It's scary. It's nauseating. And it's, it's nauseating. <laughs> I was nauseated <laughs> watching that, uh, Bart, in the, in the cabinet meeting where they were praising him lavishly and, and slavishly. And to me, uh, part of this, I think, that has to be included is that the media, the corporate media, has been complicit in this. I mean, you said, uh, Heather, you've been talking about this for since the 90s. Brad has been talking about this you know, since uh, since then as well, how Fox News and the right wing media have created this echo chamber with the help of these billionaires who have constructed these think tanks that create this echo chamber that has moved through and beyond all of American media. And it is now an alternate universe where they've gaslighted us all, where we have to actually prove that, no, wait, yes, I know that people said Merry Christmas. (laughs) I mean, even the Washington Post, what was it last week that they had that headline that said, here in this small town of Trump supporters, they never stop saying Merry Christmas. And it's like, nobody ever stops saying Merry Christmas. (laughs) That's right. I mean, here in our small town of Santa Monica, we never stop saying it here either. And this is like the People's Republic, right? I mean, I know it is, and it is gaslighting. And in fact, that's a really good point, Desi, because I think that's part of this whole. I mean, I don't even know if it's a strategy, but but it's it is it is an effect, if not a strategy, of what's happening. Because what we end up, and I know that you guys do this every day on your show. I'm doing it every day as I'm trying to write, which is I'm trying desperately to cling. To reality and not let myself get sucked into this in mm-hmm. a way where I lose my grip or fear, even if it's just a feeling that I'm losing my grip. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I, I And remembering, uh, you know, trust your instincts. You've been around a while. You know what's real. <laughs> you know what isn't. This isn't, you know, you're not the crazy one. This is happening. Now, imagine this is happening to people. I mean, we do this for a living, right? I mean, this is our, this is mm-hmm. our job to pay this kind of close attention and sort through it. Imagine for Americans, they're going to work every day. They listen to 15 minutes on the radio, right, uh, on, in, in traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, or they catch a few minutes of the Today Show or the news in the evening. They, they skim the paper. You know, this has, I can't even imagine how, how again, disorienting yep. this is for them. Let me, uh, Heather, I want to uh, take a quick break, come back and ask you uh, more on uh, along these lines and what we can look forward to in 2018, as if anybody knows. But before we break, since I mentioned Al Franken, 
Uh, we 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 haven't had you on to, to, to talk about it, but uh, since I mentioned, should, should Al Franken have resigned? And and I'm wondering what it tells us about Democrats that they they were really the ones responsible for Franken's uh, resignation here. You, you have any thoughts on that before we get to a break? Oh, I'm torn about it, to be honest. I mean, I felt like, you know, I didn't feel personally like what Al Franken did was a, a capital crime and deserving of losing his his seat, mm-hmm. uh, especially considering, you know, that there's kind of a scale of, of, of offenses here that, you know, his was, was not uh, at the top of them, mm-hmm. uh, considering where our president, for instance, is. I understand what the what the political calculation was on the part of the Democrats, mostly led by women in the in the Senate, who decided that they needed to make this statement in order to have the credibility on their side to uh, criticize others. Um, but you know, I am going to miss Al Franken, and I think that he was just coming into his own as a senator. I think he was going to be a leader of the resistance. And I think that he is, if there is a war going on in that regard, I think he is a major casualty of that. And I'm very sorry to see him go. But, you know, when you're in this kind of situation like the the, the Me Too reckoning, uh, it kind of takes on a life of its own. And I think he got caught up in it, and I think that he, uh, you know, I kind of wonder if he'd have hung on for a little while longer, if maybe he might have. Survive. Had there been an investigation, we had the facts right. out, and uh, of course he could also run again in uh, next November. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe that'll happen if the people of Minnesota on AM Minnesota. 950 uh, stand up <laughs> and raise hell. Uh, all right, uh, Digby, stand by. Let me take a quick break here. We'll come back and talk about uh, what we can look forward to or not in 2018 with Heather Digby Parton. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com slash donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Church of the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Speaking with our friend Heather Digby, Parton of Salon.com and, of course, of Hullabaloo. Uh, 
Heather, you wrote uh, recently at uh, Hullabaloo in an article titled Resistance, Not Capitulation, uh, that you keep reading these end-of-the-year pieces in which observers instruct people like you to, uh, you know, that, that continue to be outraged by Donald Trump, that uh, it's a waste of time because he lives on outrage. The only way to defeat him is to be sympathetic to his followers, let them know that you really care. We see peace after peace. Just as I was going to air here today, uh, something from AP called uh, The Trump Voter or something, uh, there is this mindset among the punditocracy that we need to pay attention to these uh, poor, beleaguered Trump voters and their needs. They're facing tough times. But you make the case that's that's really just not true at all. Are, are, are you sure about that, Digby? Yep. <laughs> yeah? Yes, I'm sure. Why? Well, because they, you know, the, uh, they've gone back and done plenty of studies about the Trump voters, you know, the, the white working class mm -hmm. that we were supposedly was what, you know, tipped the election for him. It was not based on economics. It was based upon resentment. Um, they, you know, they've crunched numbers. I mean, this is just, this, this is the fact. And people don't want to admit it. They don't want to accept it. They don't want to recognize the fact that they're, the Trump's victory was, and you know, and I don't know why they don't want to see it, because he, that's what he ran on. He ran on racial resentment, anti-immigrant fever. He ran on, you know, uh, xenophobia. You know, this, this was his appeal, mm -hmm. was, you know, we're going to make America great again, which all those people who voted for him saw as a world in which they didn't have to share the wealth with, um, you know, those undeserving people of color and immigrants and feminists and urban, um, you know, urban liberals mm -hmm. and people that they don't have anything in common with. Okay, fine. You know, now, uh, am I unsympathetic to their economic plight to the extent it does exist? And there are some people, certainly within the Rust Belt, who've had tough times as mm -hmm. manufacturing is left. Of course I am. And in fact, the Democrats have been pushing policies to help them and to try and get them out of it for a very, very long time, yeah. while the Republicans have been pushing the opposite. So, you know, as far as trying to, uh, you know, give people the tools and the ability to deal with whatever economic anxiety, to deal with inequality, to deal with, uh, you know, the economic challenges that we face, I I'm absolutely 100 percent behind that. What I'm not 100% behind and what I personally refuse to do is to capitulate to the idea that there's a world that America needs to be white again and that we have to, we have some problem with uh, immigrants destroying our culture and that um, America's an irreligious place full of heathens who need to be put back in their, you know, back in their yeah. corners, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, I'm, I don't think that playing into the politics of resentment does us any good at all. I think it's the opposite. So my feeling is this, then what I put in that, in that, um, in that article, if mm -hmm. we really want to help these people, uh, and if we really do have a genuine sense of compassion and empathy for people who are suffering economic dislocation from globalization and what have you, mm -hmm. including, by the way, people of color, people, you know, there are a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, Latina maids who work in hotels. There are a lot of African Americans who are working in, in low-level jobs in, in uh, you know, as, as mm -hmm. janitors. I mean, there's, you know, this isn't just a white thing. <laughs> the working class is all colors, right? Sure. And so, you know, of course we want to make their lives better. That's, that's one reason why we're progressive. So 
the way you do that is to get into political power. Get rid of these people like Donald Trump who give massive tax breaks to themselves, to billionaires, and who lie to the middle class and, and lie to the working class. And you get in there and you make, some, you make a difference. You try and, and, and get these policies enacted. And the way to do that right now is to resist with all our might everything that Donald Trump stands for. And that means you've got to get your people out. And if we look at the last year, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful. I don't know about you, but it appears to me that on a grassroots level, forget the Democratic Party, you know, they're mm-hmm. kind of following along, <laughs> but they're mm-hmm. not really leading, which is fine in this situation. Grassroots organizers around the country, even in places like Alabama, have come together and are resisting Trump. And they are basically saying, no, all right, that was enough. We, you, know, you pushed us to our limits, and we are now going to organize. Now, you know, that, if that continues through 2018, um, we may be able to uh, take back at least one House of Congress, and even possibly two. It's a long shot, but it's possible. Put a check on Donald Trump and start the process of you know ending this disorienting weird situation we're in with this this you know maybe it will be considered a fluke or maybe it will be the zenith of of right-wing craziness and we can start to climb back down that hill a little bit but the only way we can do it is to assume political power it can't be done any other way and and to me the idea of demoralizing the democratic base right now by capitulating to donald trump by appeasing him in some way by saying oh sure we can work together let's work together on bipartisanship that'll be fine that is giving him a win that is making that will make his people get up off the couch and go see it's working he's united the country we're all together well that was bad political move. That was actually going to be my next question, because uh, uh, McConnell and uh, uh, Trump both say now, well, we want to be more bipartisan this year. So, you know, (laughs) well, that's what they say, because obviously Mm -hmm. they've run out of they've run out of things that they can pass under reconciliation, essentially, Mm -hmm. with 50 votes. So now they need 60 votes. Now they need to be uh, at least somewhat bipartisan in order to pass anything. Well, there's a lot of stuff that does need to happen. There needs to be a deal on uh, on on DACA, right? For the for the immigrant uh, kids, there needs to be uh, 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 the children's health care uh, uh-huh. needs to be renewed. There does need to be a budget of some sort. So, don't they have to? Uh, don't Democrats have to, in some respects, work with uh, Republicans, and that will come at <clears throat> a, a, a cost, or do they just shut it all down? There are two things, there are two ways to look at this, and there, there are two kinds of things that Democrats need to do. The first is, of course, DACA, CHIP, even fixing the exchanges on health care, mm-hmm. um, you know, what is that called, Murray? The whatever. Alexander Murray. Yeah. Alexander uh, Murray, yeah. or whatever the other one is, too, right. Cassidy, who, uh, Cassidy Graham. Right. Um, those kinds of fixes, those are Democratic agenda items, Right. I mean, Republicans mm-hmm. do not care about DACA. In fact, if they pass this thing with the, under Donald Trump's signature, that splits his base. So does Chip. So does fixing Obamacare, which if the Democrats are smart, they will get him to do it, and then they'll run and say, yeah, we fixed Obamacare, you know, and split that Republican base. Doing other things, like infrastructure, for instance, which we, you know, we massively need it. We need of course, it, yeah. But it can wait until 2018. If the Democrats take over one of the houses of Congress, they can put together an infrastructure program. 
that maybe they can get Donald Trump to sign in 2019 mm-hmm. that will be far better for workers and not quite so good for all of Donald Trump's construction cronies who you know they're going to privatize everything and maybe get him to sign it. So, you know, those are the kind of things that Democrats have to be, whatever they're doing, it has to be on their terms, not on his. They can't capitulate to that. And anything they do sign on to, they've got to be able to use against the Republicans in the upcoming election, because the one thing that has to happen is that you want to demoralize their base, and they are kind of a little demoralized, you know, they're kind of, uh, you know, I mean, he's got his 30 percent, 35 percent, but as far as the Republican base, they're not as excited. The intensity level is way, way higher on the Democratic side, and the Democrats cannot do anything to dampen that base. They've got to be careful here, and I really think resistance is the way to do it. You have, they have got to be resistant to him, because I don't know about you, when over, over Christmas, you know, I've hung out with a bunch of people who are sort of civilians in political life. They follow it. Most of my family, I have some conservatives, but I've also got a bunch of, you know, normal liberals and friends and people like that. You know, they <laughs> they do not want to see Donald Trump have any victories. It, it absolutely, you know, destroyed them to watch him sign that, that you know, that tax The tax bill. bill. You know, this is what, you know, they're living for the idea that the Democrats are going to fight back, that they're going to fight him, that they're going to win, that they're going to, you know, pull back some of this power, that they're going to repudiate him and say, no, this is not what America is. This is not what our country is. No, we're not going to do it. I've got uh, two more questions that I want to ask you about. We're very short on time here, Heather. But um, so very quickly. Since you mentioned the tax cuts, uh, will that tax bill help or hurt Republicans and Trump in 2018? And I know you you seemed fairly confident in a recent piece of yours uh, over at Salon that they were going to help, that they were not going to help Republicans as much as Republicans seem to think that they will help Republicans. And I know that many Democrats think it's going to hurt them. Uh, but will that be true when paychecks start coming in with a bit more money, uh, you know, before before the midterms in 2018? Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell seem very, very confident about that. Are they just putting on a game face there uh, or do they know something that uh, lefties like you don't, Heather? Well, I think that might have been true if they'd have put together a tax plan that made any sense. I think they could have made some hay with it, um, but they didn't do that. You remember George W. Bush? Back when he did his big tax cut, he actually sent checks to people. Yeah, one and they big said, lump you know, sum. Yeah, thanks to your, your president, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and took you know really took credit for it. That was smart. This idea of you know these the middle classes and and the working class are going to get very you know minor changes in their paycheck. I you know and, they, and these people get up and talk about it like they say, oh you know that's going to be sixteen hundred dollars a year. That's life changing for these people. I'm going no no it isn't. You know, it's a nice little chunk, but over the course of 12, 12 months, that is not going to change anybody's life. But there is another group of people. They are the white college-educated suburbanites, many of whom have been kind of drifting toward Democrats in recent years anyway, came very close in 2016, and in the off-year election so far this year have been moving rather dramatically to the Democratic side. Those people, in many cases, living in places, you know, in urban areas and the big suburbs, are going to see their taxes go up, and they are going to go to. They are sophisticated about their taxes. They've got a lot of issues. You know, some of these people in blue states where they're getting mm-hmm. the, you know, what they call it, the salt, the state and local state tax, and local tax deduction, you know, yeah. deduction and the mortgage into interest deduction and the kind of things that are going to hit this 
particular group of people, they're going to they go to tax, uh, you know, uh, they go to accountants, and the accountants can say, hey, dude, sorry, you know, you're going to be paying a lot more. Those kinds of people are going to be the people who will actually notice. And I don't know if Paul Ryan understood that. <laughs> I don't think he did. This was a slapdash tax bill which was kind of surprising, don't you think? I mean, didn't you think they could pull one off the shelf and it just be ready to go? And you know, there could I have mean, been, yeah, well, yeah, but th- that they had sort of a plan to do that. It seems like, but then all of the lobbyists got in there and said, "Hey, as long as you're uh, doing this tax <laughs> yeah, bill with only fifty votes, how right, about, how about this? a little taste?" Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Heather, I've only got uh, very uh, like a minute here. I give you like thirty seconds, impossibly, to answer this question. Uh, you know, you and I discussed. Uh, the possibility in earnest before the 2016 election, uh, when most people were dismissing it as a ridiculous idea that that Trump could win, uh, even though you and I uh, t- thought that it was you know very possible, uh, it was still shocking, a shocking surprise, I think, for everyone to see it actually come about. Since then, and again, unfair question for 30 seconds, but since then, over this past year, very quickly, what has most surprised you over the past year? of Donald Trump as uh, President of the United States? You know, I've got to be honest, as much as I had anticipated that he would be terrible, uh, I didn't think he'd be this bad. I think I'm most surprised at the fact that the man has shown he's completely incapable of learning anything. And I think, I didn't think anybody could be that quite this stubbornly uh, unfit for office as he is. I mean, he's still tweeting absolute nonsense. Um, and I, I thought that he would have, it somehow I guess I thought the office, the majesty of the office or whatever, would somehow mature him in some way and that he'd get off the campaign mode. It's become clear to me that he's incapable of growing in office, and I think that probably surprises me more than anything. I just did that anyone would be incapable of growing in office. And you know. You're right. I mean, it is absolutely shocking that he hasn't, even tried uh, yep. to try to step up and and fail we could forgive but he hasn't even tried right heather digby parton uh known far and wide as digby find her work uh every day at pretty much every day at salon.com and certainly every day over at digby's blog.blogspot.com otherwise known as the hullabaloo blog also follow her on the twitters at digby Five six, Heather. Thanks so much. We will, I hope, see you in the new year. Absolutely. Happy New Year to both of you. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer Desi Doyen and to, of course, Heather Digby Parton, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast or any other, like that exclusive Al Gore interview I mentioned uh, from our previous broadcast, you can download it at bradblog.com. You can also drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. My thanks once again to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate at this very critical juncture for both the Bradcast and the, uh, the Brad Blog and the Green News Report for that matter. So bradblog.com slash donate. Thanks to those of you who stopped by there. Uh, during this season of giving. How's that? All right. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>